Welcome to Apostrophe Cast. This episode, Heather Cousins opens the cellar door and ushers us down into the potato room. With a deceptive clarity, Cousins' voice leads us deeper and deeper into the darkness with meticulous details, like practical good girl underwear. But soon we are lost under the surface of this bright, normal world in places where light, no matter how bright, cannot make the way forward clear. Mercifully, Cousins provides us with new eyes to see in this world, like two fat pearls. Please enjoy Heather Cousins. Hi, this is Heather Cousins, and I'm reading for Apostrophe Cast. I'm reading in northern Michigan, in my father's house, my childhood home. I grew up in a town called Bear Lake, Michigan, which is a really tiny village with a population of only about 350 people. I'm home this weekend for my kid sister's high school graduation and thought it would be really exciting to record this in my basement, in, in particular in what we called the little room growing up and still call the little room. Small root cellar type space that's behind a door within my basement. It was probably originally used for the storage of vegetables, apples, um, there are shelves along a back wall, which probably were once full of mason jars, full of um, a variety of canned type goods in the era before electric refrigeration. This house, based on a newspaper we found in the walls when renovating years ago, probably dates back to about the 1880s. Um, and the room I'm in is probably about six feet wide by... 12 feet long. So not really tiny, but tiny enough to deserve the moniker of the little room. It's a dark, cold, subterranean space, and it served a little bit as the inspiration for my first book of poetry called Something in the Potato Room, which I will be reading from. I'm going to dive in in section two, this book is fairly unusual in that it's a long narrative. It kind of walks the line between poetry and prose. It's a bit of a hybrid form. It follows the experiences of a young woman who works in a museum as a secretary. She's just bought a new house that she's just getting to know and explore. She's a little bit of a hypochondriac. She's an odd character. She collects silverware. She doesn't get along very well with her boss at the museum, and his name is Dr. Paul. And I think that's really all you need to know, and I'm going to jump in then with part two, and you will see towards the end of the section I'm going to be reading from a space that's very similar to this space that I'm reading in now. And I'm also planning to read a handful of new poems when I'm done reading from the book. So, part two, in which it is all moving underneath. On the balcony of the new house, I look down at the dandelion backyard and my white wrist where, as a child, petals had been rubbed. Yellow, saffron, curry. If it were love skin, but mine wasn't. I sidestepped the distance to the ground. Twenty feet? Thirty? How many toes? If I jumped, 
but they roll off my feet like marbles. The house wasn't enough. I went to an animal shelter, cage after cage of barking white muzzles, shepherds and retrievers, flecked and golden hairs floated in the corridor. They had bowls of water and empty. What if I forgot? What if I didn't have the energy? I often slept 12 hours a night. In the cat room, noses and paws pushed out between silver bars, globes of fur and skin. Humans can grow tumors with teeth and hair, cells that want to make a face, a new person. My throat worried me, and I was lightheaded. I might have diphtheria, I said, calling into work. I put on a sock hat, pink pom-poms, and began to crack eggs. After an omelet, I timed my palpitations. When they subsided, I decided I might as well do some unpacking. I tackled the collection, silverware, sterling and plated, sealed into Johnny Walker boxes. I had found the perfect squares at the liquor store. The collection had grown too large. Some of the lesser pieces would have to be moved to the basement, a low-ceilinged room with small windows, half ground, half sky. If there were a tornado, I would be safe. I would crouch arms overhead in the southwest corner. The boxes left drag trails on the long unswept floor. I hurried through the dust and mites, singing the bear went over the mountain. The vibrations of my voice shook the spider webs and the spiders stopped moving their eight legs. While pushing with my foot a box of soup spoons, I found behind the stairs a small wooden door, corbelled and planked. There was a lock, but the lock was rusted through. The door opened. Crumbs of rotted wood stuck to my hand. I threw them over my left shoulder like salt. My eyes adjusted to the darkness, expecting roots. Earwigs. Sacking. That something else was there. A horrible. A squatter. A chief of the inner station. I bolted upstairs, frightened that he might somehow come after. I dug myself into the laundry hamper. Rabbit breeding in sweatshirts and white underwear. Practical, good girl underwear. My nervous fingers found a used dryer sheet, mountain fresh. I rubbed my cheeks with it. Was he dangerous? Diseased? Part 3 In which he turns and the sun turns and the spoons turn. I told myself, call the police. I imagined the conversation. Hello, officer. Come quickly. Yes, ma'am. We're on our way, with the news anchor and her pearl-buttoned blouse. They would take my squatter in their squad car. They would count his bones. They would assemble, on black cloth, photograph ready, archival, click, click. Men with monogrammed handkerchiefs would scramble to the courthouse to look through yellow, secret-smelling papers. Dr. Paul would have his handkerchief, WJP, tucked in his breast pocket, laughing and sniffing, holding cracked newspaper against his white upper lip.
I pulled a piece of string across the fourth stair ankle height and laced three jingle bells through it, then duct taped each end to the white walls. I applauded myself. Not everyone would have thought of the jingle bells, nor had them on hand. I locked my bedroom door, crawled into bed, and buried myself in stuffy hot. I couldn't sleep, picturing him curled up behind that small wooden door. How long had he been? The bells never rang, never even trembled, and I didn't get any rashes or fevers. When morning came, I stayed in bed. I didn't want to go to the museum. I didn't want to be in a place where everything is behind glass and says, please do not touch. Over coffee, not at work, I read an article in the Free Press about the year's Pulitzer Prize winners. $10,000 to Miss Marcus for her masterful stories about patients, families, and physicians that illuminated the often unseen world of cancer survivors. I began to think there was a reason for my discovery. He could be my project, my salvage. I would find out everything. An agent, a digger, primum mobile. I put on a wool skirt and went to the courthouse. I brought a notebook and pencils. I brought a roll of quarters and an expanding file folder. There were computers and microfiche viewers. I rolled the word silently on my tongue. Microfiche, microfiche, microfiche. More of what there was. Electric outlets with surprised bases. Cords, wires, and strings heavy wooden tables with waxy varnish, tropper ceiling lights, fibrous carpet thin and flat, army colored filing cabinets in formation, names and dates, newspaper photographs, sepia, curling, brittle. But there weren't any answers or even hypotheses. Was my method wrong? My skills? I'd come to expect that I would come home with names and dates pinned to my blouse like metals. I took a peppermint Starbright from a bowl at the sign-out desk, unwrapped the stiff cellophane, sucked hard, crunched. I walked down the basement stairs to the wooden door, the door for an old woman, back bent, ossified in burden. I peered inside the small earthen room, a dark, crumbling walk-in. Perhaps it had been used for keeping ice or vegetables, a potato room. He lay in a corner. Watching him, I felt pink and full of skin. What I wanted to do most in the museum was touch to have that authority which no visitor is permitted. I often stood in front of the glass thinking about the artifacts, the basket of wool cards and sewing shuttles, the Ojibwe arrowheads, the tray of Civil War buttons, one with a gouge across its eagle. I would imagine the original owner, hair color, rotted tooth, muddy blanket, bare dreams, final vision, shuddering birds, winged readies dropping from the sky. And the narrative continues, but I'm going to stop there and read now 
um, just a handful of tiny, fairly new poems. The first one deals with Michigan. It's about hauling wood. In childhood, we had a wood stove in the basement. I would have to haul wood for my father, who was kind enough to pay me a nickel for every two logs that I hauled. So every autumn, there would be a huge dump of freshly cut logs, and I would have to carry them down the side hill into our basement through a back door and pile them hundreds of them um, into our basement. This poem is called Mindfulness. Mindfulness. My father pays me five cents for every two logs I haul down to the basement and stack. I carry the wood, sharp split wedges, cranky rhombuses and small rounds down the side hill to the back door. Carefully, I pick up each log, inspect for the black stars of spiders. The bark sloughs off, leaves a trail of scabs. The new revealed wood is bright, golden sheened, covered with a few curls of blackened burnwork, worm paths. I keep count, 56, 57. I never lie. I carry two or three at once. The wind greets me on the hill, pushes my hair back, leaves a blessing on my forehead. My arms grow knots and burn like torches. I carry the fire. The Miniature Rose Neighbors drop off philodendrons and peace lilies. The kitchen fills up with trays of meat and cheese from the deli. A miniature rose sits in front of the window pane. It is winter. My father has cancer. The rose presses her hands against the glass, and what she sees makes her hands turn yellow and fall off. This one is called Milk Jug Anchor. Over the side of the aluminum rowboat, the anchor drops. A plastic milk jug filled with yellow and black sand. It thunks into the water, makes the lake slap itself. We see its pale white body falling away, its ghost face disappearing. It becomes a part of the dark water making its way through shadows. It doesn't know it will bump against another world, come to rest in an opaque cloud of silt. It goes on, out of our sight, heavy, aimless, slow. Leaving Home I am leaving home, and you are not. I have told you many times over what I have needed to say. What I say now, one more time, won't add anything. We sit on the little hill that leads down to the lake. We watch the lake and its many wild waves, a hundred blue horses with white manes crashing against the fence of their pasture. 
red-bellied woodpecker. I hear her working her beak like a teletype operator in wartime. In a black and white houndstooth coat, she leans forward, belly and head on fire, red hair, red thoughts. Somewhere in these woods, a tree is trembling. I look, but I can't find it. Only the sound, a fast ricochet, as if the balance of the world hangs on her pounding line, a persistent attempt to get through. To what? Sometimes she pounds out numbers and directions. Sometimes she works in code, receiving and sending. She doesn't know where. And this is the last poem I'm going to read, and it's also the shortest. It's simply called Poetry. Poetry. The gift comes in a box, hinged. When you open it up, there they are. Two fat pearls. Your new eyes. And that's it. It's about 9 o'clock in the evening here. And I'm about to go enjoy being in northern Michigan. I'm going to go out to a campfire um, with my family in our backyard. And I hope you've enjoyed the reading. Thank you to Apostrophe Cast for hosting me. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Please join us next episode for Dan Lichtenberg.